I think it's safe to assume that when our guest today co-founded a video game company in 1979, he didn't expect something called the internet to be a buzz with excitement about him working on a new game 42 years later. But here we are. That man is named Ken Williams. The company, of course, was Sierra. And today we're lucky enough to have an audience with Ken to get an insight into his history and perhaps, if we're lucky, the scoop on his brand new game. Hello and welcome, Ken. Hey, thank you for having me. This is, uh, this is a lot of fun. Sierra, if we go back to the start, it was founded by you and Roberta back in 1979. And the first game that you put on sale was Mystery House on the Apple II. But programming wasn't a skill you'd learned just for that purpose. You'd honed those skills in earlier years. So can you just talk us through how you discovered computers in the first place and, and where it all started for you, Ken? Well, I, um, you know, I'm not that old, but somehow I managed to be there kind of at the birth of the industry. I, uh, started started life young i guess you'd say and that i was into college at 15 and um well i'm inadvertently out by 16 but that's another story and um started working in the computer industry back when it was uh, programming key punch machines and um you know paper tape systems and um so you know I, and i did like 10 years that were very exciting years when it was kind of the birth of the mainframe computers and um big IBM computers and was programming those. And uh, LA at the time really didn't have that much computer activity. So I started um, consulting for everybody because I was one of the few early programmers in the Los Angeles area and uh, worked for McDonnell Douglas and LA Children's Hospital and kind of, I don't know, like 12 different companies, Beacons Moving and Storage. Um, and then we were living in LA and kind of hated LA and wanted to move to the woods. So I was always looking for something entrepreneurial to do and um, started working on, I, I had done some compiler development on a um, product. Uh, well, I, on one product that was very similar to Excel and another product that um, I think kind of became the basis for uh, SQL uh, database language. And so then I started um, working on a compiler for the uh, Apple computer when it came out. And Roberta taught me to do in a game instead. And uh, the rest was history. And in your recent book, which is titled Not All Fairy Tales Have Happy Endings, a great book. I, I absolutely devoured that book in, in a couple of sittings. So I really enjoyed that, Ken. In that book, it's, it's clear that you were really well read as a student. You, you hung out a lot at the library. And also you were very entrepreneurial from a very young age, age, taking pride in, for example, selling the most newspapers door to door in comparison to your other colleagues at the time. Were your ambitions as a young man always to create a big company, get rich and change the world when you were young? Or, or were you just trying to survive like the rest of us? From a very young age, I, um, I was enamored for whatever reason with... Um, uh, a goal of getting rich. Yeah, I was reading these books in which people were, um, yeah, because I had kind of a poor childhood and um, lived in kind of a uh, rundown neighborhood and um, got beat up a few times and just said, you know, this is not the life I want and uh, certainly not the life I want for my kids. And, um, you know, then I would read these books about people that had um, yachts and airplanes and, um, you know, lots, lots of girls and uh, all of that sounded pretty good. So um, I did a lot of independent study. I, um, you know, because 
I don't know. Yeah, I just knew from a young age I wanted to break out of the mold. And and really, I mean, part of the reason why I wrote the book was to, um, you know, I assume there are other kids that are out there like me that uh, kind of think that uh, they're dead ended. You know, if you can't afford college is not cheap. And uh, plus, a lot of people can't uh, afford to uh, take four years off and go to college. And, you know, they, um, in some ways, I, I considered writing a book about Sierra something that I had to do so that people would read it. Because if I just wrote something um, generically about, um, I guess I'd call it business, uh, nobody would read it. But um, the, you know, the real message of the book, I think, is that with hard work and a lot of independent study and, you know, setting goals that people can do incredible things. Yeah, yeah, you really did educate yourself out of a, a hard beginning to where you are now, which is actually sitting on that boat somewhere in the world and in, living the dream. So, so well, it, done it to did you. work. Uh, it did work. Everything and, except uh, the yeah. girls, I kind of locked in on one. So, <laughs> were you drawn to computers initially because it was an industry with a reputation that could make you rich and was well paid? Or were you a, a bona fide geek who got obsessed with computers for computer's sake, like me and many of the viewers? Um, I don't know. I was kind of drawn to everything. When I was in school, I was studying accounting. And, um, oh, um, yeah, in, in fact, I really figured I would grow up and be more of a stock trader. I um, studied for the CPA exam when I was like 16. I mean, for no good reason other than that... Um, I figured that people that were in finance made good money. So, um, you know, I would go to the library and read all of these uh, classes and everything else on how to uh, become an accountant. And that served me well later in life. And that it turns out to be a, a software company CEO, having a good accounting background uh, doesn't hurt. So, and I also studied law. You know, there was a side of me that thought, may I'd wind up being a lawyer and, uh, you know, studied contract law and, Oh, I, I don't know. Even today, I mean, as 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 a boater, I suddenly in order to, um, you know, we, we took a boat around the world and it required uh, me to become an electrician and a plumber and a diesel mechanic. And, you know, when you're you know 2000 miles offshore and something breaks, uh, you can't call somebody to fix it. You better know what you're doing. So, um, yeah. you know, independent study has always been part of my life. And uh, you know, and, and at the time when I was young, there was no such thing as YouTube. Today, I mean, the beautiful thing about YouTube is you go there, you pick any subject, and there's tutorials that you can go for weeks. I mean, it's just really yeah. a very, um, it's almost amazing. I mean, there's almost nothing you can't learn. That uh, why people want to waste their time in college for four years, I don't know that I understand. So <laughs> I'm a big proponent of uh, trade schools where you say, I want to be an X. And you go to school to learn how to be an X or you just study it. And uh, that, to me, seems better. And in amongst all this studying, just thinking about we're still in the 70s in particular, did you find time for any gaming? Were you a games player? Because we had the arcades, we had the consoles like the Atari VCS. Did you game for fun in that period or not really? No, you know, I, I guess it's just not me. I, I appreciate games. I enjoy games, but I'm not really a gamer. It, um, I suppose I could be if I actually had free time, but um, I've never had free time. It, uh, the idea of, you know, I'll, I'll watch TV is really the only thing I do. And even then, uh, we strictly watch documentaries or yeah, it's 
I don't know why. I, I, the idea of sitting down and playing um, a game for um, 40 hours to me seems, um, I don't know, it's it just tough to envision me doing it. So. And uh, you mentioned um, your first game, the Mystery House. This came about because Roberta wanted to create the game. And I understand she bought you an Apple II. Is that right? One Christmas. That's how the Apple II came into the household. Yeah, I bought a uh, PRS-80 that we used to call a Trash-80. They were really, really bad. It was a um, from Radio Shack, and it was a uh, black and white machine with a uh, super gutless with a uh, cassette drive. And I was uh, working on my Fortran compiler on it, and uh, Apple II came along, uh, although at that time it was also uh, cassette tape-based. And uh, Roberta bought me one, and the uh, floppy drives happened to come out that Christmas. And she got me one with this uh, amazing floppy drive that held a, a whopping 80 KB of data. And um, so I started programming on this uh, monster machine, I guess you'd call it, the uh, almighty Apple II. And um, yeah, that was a big step up. And that was, that was my Christmas gift in 1979. And was the idea of a game being banded about at this point? Was there a bit of emotional bribery going on when she bought that? Did she say, oh, I wish I knew someone with an Apple II who could write a game engine for me at this point? Or, or was that not on the cards yet? Well, I, you know, in fact, uh, at first, yeah, Roberta never, you know, gaming was no part of Roberta. I mean, she was focused on raising our kids and, um, you know, was happy raising our, uh, we had one or two sons at the time. I think two, I think one and a baby. And uh, she was, um, yeah, busy doing that. And then I brought home a uh, teletype machine that actually had a modem, an old acoustic modem where we dialed into a, a computer and I was dialed into uh, MIT, and um, I, I was just goofing around to see what was on the computer. I mean, I thought it was really cool. I had this terminal hooked up to MIT, and I noticed a uh, game there, um, I, a, a Colossal Cave, it was called. It was an adventure game. Oh, yes. And uh, I showed it to Roberta. I, I, I probably didn't play 10 minutes of it before I said, hey, Roberta, this is kind of cool. Check this out. And uh, she came over and started playing it and then wouldn't give me my teletype back. So, um, <laughs> and she, she stayed on it. I, I thought, yeah, in, in fact, I, we debate. I believe that she stayed on it all night and uh, finished the game. And she says she actually spent several weeks on it. But, um, so I don't know. But I know that she loved it. When she was done, she started thinking about um, why, what maybe she could write a game. And... Um, then she lobbied me to program her game, and I really considered it kind of a, a waste of effort, but it, it seemed a pretty simplistic uh, task. And um, and, and she, yeah, she took me to dinner and wined and dined me and talked me into uh, programming it, and I thought it was really only going to be a couple of weeks of sidetracking, but it became uh, 20 years of sidetracking, so they never <laughs> did go back to my compiler. So in comparison to things like your compiler and your previous experience, it was a, a, a fairly simple task in your mind to make this game, was it, Mystery House? That's right. Yeah, no, I thought it would... Uh, yeah. I mean, it turned out to be a lot trickier than I thought in that... Um, well, and, and even initially when uh, she started designing it, I don't think we thought we were going to do pictures. But uh, then pretty quickly she said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if... 
And uh, what if you could add graphics to it? And that got started me thinking. And, you know, we're, even words that are just familiar today, like vector graphics or uh, raster graphics, I mean, none of that existed then. There were no tools. There was no, um, there was just nothing. It was a, it, the whole industry was a blank sheet of paper in those days. And um, I had the idea of doing uh, what, what we today call vector graphics to handle the pictures. And that gave me a way to give her lots of pictures on a little floppy disk and uh, built what is in effect like a miniature compiler to uh, so that I could take all the code for the game and make it small. And uh, and it all came together. And um, yeah, and the company was born when I showed uh, the little uh, demo of the game I was doing for her to a uh, computer store. And at the time, I mean, there really were no computer stores. There were like eight computer stores in the United States. And, uh, but the game immediately drew a crowd. Everybody packed around the computer. The store said they would take all of them that I could sell them. And I think I showed them, I talked about my uh, compiler and they were yawned. And um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that was quickly how Sierra became born. So. Did that frustrate you at all, that they yawned at the, the thing that you were a bit more interested in, the Fortran and the compiler, and they got excited about the game? Yeah, you know, there, there, there's a side of me that is, um, I guess, serious, in that um, even after Sierra started, uh, within the first year, you notice we launched a, a word processor called Superscript. We launched um, an assembler uh, from Randy Hyde, the uh, Lisa compiler, and uh, but none of that stuff ever really took off. Um, actually, Superscript did reasonably okay, and then we did another word processor called Homeward that we did jointly with IBM, and it did reasonably okay. But it was pretty clear that um, games were the money was at. Okay, so what I've got a few viewer questions scattered throughout here. So while we're in this period, the first question is from Michael. And he says, do you still have your Apple One motherboard mentioned in the book Hackers? Do you happen to have that? Uh, you know, I don't think I have the one that was mentioned in the book Hackers, but um, I actually have another one. Um, in, in the, well, we, we had a fire at our house and um, I happened to be in San Francisco at a computer show at the time and was actually out to dinner with uh, Wozniak and... Uh, We'd, um, we'd, we'd drank a fair amount when I got a call that our house was on fire. And uh, we uh, rushed back um, immediately from uh, San Francisco to Oakhurst. You know, we had two kids in the house and uh, the house burned all the way to the ground and the kids were standing in their pajamas out in the driveway. And um, I went to the babysitter and uh, that was the end of that Apple One. And then uh, Wozniak heard that I'd lost it and hooked me up with somebody where I could get another one. So I, I do indeed have an Apple One, but uh, but it's not the same one as uh, in the Hackers. You still have one. Yeah, that was a very difficult read in your book, reading about the experience you went through with the house burning down. So I can't imagine what it would have been like to go through. Um, yeah, it's not yeah, you... fun. No, and well, and it, and it was weird in that... Um, you suddenly realize you have no clothes. You have no anything. I mean, imagine, I mean, literally, we had the clothes on our backs and the kids only had their pajamas. The next day we had to spend uh, shopping and we had no place to live. It was, uh, yeah, it was strange. So. 
Now, um, Mystery House did well. You mentioned your word processor did okay and some other software was starting to take off. Uh, did you start to get into the mindset then of we need to create a games-making factory here and get as many games made as possible? What was the mindset off the back of the success of Mystery House? Oh, um, you know, Mystery House, it, it's staggering now to think how fast it all happened. Uh, if you think about it, I got the computer in uh, December of 1979. The game launched in May of 1980. And we moved to Yosemite in about August of 1980. So in that nine-month period, somehow I was uh, confident enough in the game. I was still working a full-time job. I mean, I had to, um, yeah, I had house payments to make and two kids to feed. And uh, the game was being developed uh, nights and weekends. And I wasn't just working one job. I was working a full-time job plus, uh, I don't know, probably 10 different companies I was doing contract programming for. Plus, I was developing the game, and yet somehow we got it out in that period of time. And um, and how I was able to predict that it was a hit. I mean, it, well, although it was just obvious it was a hit, but to have the confidence to sell your house and move to a log cabin in the mountains and do all that in a kind of a 90-day period, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I, I guess I was young, you know, and I, I and what the heck. But uh, but we did it. We moved to the woods and um, literally into a log cabin, and um, and and it worked out. Yeah, and Mudge Ranch. Most of the old games have the uh, Mudge Ranch Road in Corsgold address, which was our home, and uh, the original. You know, all the customer support, everything was going to our home, and it was um, kind of a nightmare because. I, uh, it never occurred to me the game would be sold internationally or in other time zones. And uh, suddenly we're getting calls at two in the morning and four in the morning. And um, yeah, whether we wanted it or not, we had to have an office. So within weeks of moving up there to, uh, to Yosemite and um, you know, moving in, we wound up having to get an office in town and get a new phone number. And it was crazy times. So as we move into the 80s then, as, as the company's growing, th there was trouble for, for the games industry as a whole because we had the great crash of the early 80s. I tend to associate Sierra with microcomputers first and foremost. And in the UK, the reliance on the microcomputers over consoles meant that we, we weathered that video game crash. Few really noticed it over here. Was Sierra well-placed to raid, ride out that crash in the early 80s? We could have done perfectly fine if we had just stuck to what we knew, producing uh, games for Apple computers. And um, we'd have been fine. But instead, we uh, ventured into video game systems and started working on games for the 2600. And it was a disaster. I mean, when, um, yeah, it's hard to relate to now, but um, computers went, or not computers, but gaming on uh, game machines went from something that everybody had to do to zero almost overnight. It, um, I, I, you know, it just lost its cool factor. And uh, why that hasn't happened again since, I don't know. I, it, um, but it's just like somebody flipped a switch one day and we got caught with, um, oh, lots and lots of inventory and commitments to buy more inventory because we thought we were going to sell... Um, well, hundreds of thousands or millions of these video game cartridges, and they were expensive. The uh, I don't know the business model today, but in those days, 
you would have to pay for the cartridge, which would be like, I don't know, 10 to $15. And then they would assess an extra fee that was to go in their pockets of maybe another $10. So already you had, um, you know, $20, $25 invested in your inventory. And they wanted a lot of that money up front. So, you know, we had multi-million dollar commitments to take cartridges when the industry went to zero. And um, that basically bankrupted the company. We were never bankrupt. We just shut down all employees, shut down all spending. And Roberta and I ran our credit cards up to the limit. And that kept us wow. in business. Yeah. Well, and then we, we it, it's in the book, but we did a deal with IBM that gave us some royalty advances. And that's really what saved the company. Yeah, we'll come on to that in just a moment. I spoke uh, not so long ago to Al Lowe, who I think was one of your earlier hires at the company. I don't know if this ties in with the same period, but I'll just quote him. He says, Ken took all of us programmers and designers aside and said, I'd like you to work as outside contractors. He said that you'd move them to the other side of the accounting books as prepaid assets, offering royalties on future games instead of being on the payroll. So was that a way of you trying to keep hold of the talent in light of tough times? Or was that a longer term strategy that you had there? Well, the <laughs> our problem was not the P&L. I mean, in, in some companies, uh, you'll, you'll work hard to show a profit. Our, our problem was not what we were reporting as financial. It was that we just had no cash. I mean, there was no money with which to give people. It didn't matter if I was giving it to them as royalty advances or as salary. The, the problem was there's just no money. Um, Roberta at that time stepped in and took over accounts payable. And she, I mean, her job was basically to call and sweet talk vendors and convince them to um, um, take payments instead of asking for money. We offered uh, some people uh, stock in the company instead of money, but nobody would take us up on that. <laughs> and then um, they, they would have come out just great if they had. And we, um, yeah, so I mean, really, uh, what I asked the programmers to do was just to um, work without a paycheck. I mean, it was Oakhurst. Where else were they going to work? I mean, up at Yosemite, there was basically us or unemployment. And so I asked a lot of the people to work for free um, just to, uh, against some future royalty in the product, including Al Lowe. And he did work for free for a while. And um, and then he got royalties and he he came out just great. Yeah, he was very happy with the agreement. It worked out well for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, he took um, over I as lead programmer for a while. He was our uh, programming manager. So and, okay. but then he decided he'd make more money developing games. So he went back to being a game developer. Uh, <laughs> he didn't tell me that bit. <laughs> Now, as Allo has come up in the conversation, it seems like the right time to ask this question. This is one from viewer Daniel. Uh, he asks, was there a story behind the Ken sent me joke in Leisure Suit Larry? That's where you knock on the door and you, and you have to say the password of Ken sent me as the password. I, you know, there may be. I don't know what it is. It, um, <laughs> I think it was just meant as inside humor from uh, Al. I didn't see it until I played the game. And uh, what, what is so weird is if you Google that and then go to like the images tab, you'll see that there are many, many places you can buy T-shirts that say Ken sent me on them. And that's um, I, I, a pretty inside joke. I mean, I, I don't know that, um, although I should get one. I, you know, I still haven't ordered one. I think it'd be fun to have. Yeah. But uh, they got a picture of Leisure Suit Larry and says Ken sent me and uh, weird. 
to be part of a uh, cultural thing like that. He also has a second question on the same topic. He says, um, do you know anything about what really happened to the missing game Leisure Suit Larry 4? Yeah, I, I do think there actually was a game and um, Al started designing it. And I think he decided it just wasn't coming together and wanted to start with a blank sheet of paper and do a whole new design. And then for some reason, he just decided to rename it Larry 5 instead of Larry 3 or something like that. And it became kind of a, um, yeah, kind of a joke that, um, yeah, the, what did you call it? Like Larry for the case of the missing floppies or something like that. It was, um, yeah, it was just fun. I, you know, Al would have to answer that question, but he did it. He thought it was funny and I wasn't so sure it was funnier that anybody would get the joke, but uh, they did. Uh, yeah, I called it inside humor. There were a lot of jokes that um, programmers would do to pick on each other and um, humor that no customer would understand. So I would have to go through the games and say, get rid of that. You know, if, if it's not funny to the customer, the fact it's funny to us is uh, irrelevant. No one wants to pay funny to, our money to their money to watch us entertain each other. So but then I decided that picking on me was probably fair game because I was um, fairly well known. And picking on, uh, although they did pick, you know, you'll see a lot of humor picking on Rick Cavan, who kind of um, ran the company uh, or a big chunk of it toward the end. And um, I, uh, that, yeah, that I never thought was a uh, fair game because nobody knew him but me, kind of, and his wife. Right. And then comes IBM, which you mentioned a moment ago, and King's Quest. This was part of the IBM PC Junior project. Uh, and it sounds like IBM offered you a pretty sweet deal. Just to explain the significance of this to Sierra, if you will. Well, I, the significance was that um, we had no money and we had uh, payroll. <laughs> we had a building and, um, you know, we needed to stay in business. And we had already kind of been talking to them about doing a uh, version. They had marketed a um, adventure game we did. I think it was just Wizard and the Princess. Yeah, it was Wizard and the Princess that they marketed under the name Adventures in Serenia. And it was just a repackaging of our um, original game. And uh, they had asked us to port it to this new machine they had coming out that was called the Peanut, later renamed to the PC Junior. And uh, I, you know, they were willing to give us some development advances on it. And so I figured, well, they got deep pockets. May I go ask them if they would be willing to pay more money and we'll do a version of it that is animated. And uh, Roberta had been excited about the idea of doing animation in a product someday. And um, so I went to ask them and they said, fly back to Florida, that they were excited about the idea. And so instead of pitching them on one game, I said, well, if they've got lots of money and a machine coming out, why not pitch them on five games? And uh, so I asked them about, um, oh, a whole host of products, including a new word processor and, um, oh, some of our action games. Um, I forget which ones, maybe Oil's Well, or I'm not sure. But uh, they funded like five different products for the PC Junior. And uh, we did them and they put up... Um, um, a lot of money um, turned out to be not as much as we needed. We actually uh, um, wound up going into our own pockets for that. But um, yeah, they put up the money and through a weird quirk in timing, 
um, they made us sign agreements agreeing not to give the products to them exclusively. They, um, they were under um, antitrust investigation at the time and had, um, had been in a lot of different uh, lawsuits with the government and they were afraid the government was going to break them up. It's hard to remember that now, but at one point in history, IBM was uh, thought of as dominant the way a Google or Amazon is today. And uh, there comes a point where you get so afraid of breaking up that um, you do business deals you wouldn't normally do. And um, yeah, so IBM made us sign something saying that the deal was uh, um, non, and really they had me over a barrel at the time, even though they didn't know that. If they'd asked for exclusivity, we'd have had a different uh, outcome and probably Sierra would, wouldn't have survived. But uh, instead, what happened was they launched their IBM PC Junior. It bombed immediately. Uh, Radio Shack had been working on a uh, clone of the PC Junior. And um, for whatever reason, the, uh, well, just better hardware, the, um, the, the Tandy 1000, it was called, went when the PC Junior failed. And we had all the software for the um, PC Junior, and we just moved it straight over to the Tandy 1000, and they had 6,500 retail outlets, all of which featured our software to launch their Tandy. And suddenly revenue was rolling in uh, big time, and our investors who had uh, walked away suddenly uh, thought we were uh, heroes again and um, put us back in business. That's really amazing about the exclusivity. So the fact that IBM were considered a monopoly they made you sign a bit of paper saying we won't make it exclusive. So in any other time, that would have been an exclusive deal and, and Sierra's history would have been very different. Yeah. Um, and then moving that software to the PC Junior, presumably, sorry, to the Tandy, the, the PC Junior was designed to be IBM PC compatible, although it wasn't fully, it was nearly was, as was the Tandy. So it was, it was a pretty small job porting these from the PC Junior to the Tandy, was it? Yeah, that was tiny. The IBM PC at that time was a um, kind of a non-market in some ways because IBM had deliberately um, thought of the PC Junior as where they would have graphics and sound, and the IBM PC had no sound and really no graphics. It had a uh, clunky, they called it a CGA card, and then they moved it up to an EGA, EGA card, but even that only gave 16 colors, and you still didn't have sound. So, and there were certainly in those days, I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, 15 years before they started putting um, graphics cards into computers. So there was, um, yeah, it, the, we did support PC compatible, but it wasn't really a primary market for us because the machine wasn't really very good at games. So, and it wasn't sold that way. It was really positioned against the business world, but times have changed. Yeah. Okay, our next viewer question, as we're um, talking about King's Quest, is from Adam Davenport, and he'd like to know, do you have a favorite and a least favorite King's Quest game? And if so, why? Ha. Um, <laughs> I don't, because I was never really a King's Quest game player. I, um, uh, Roberto would have a strong opinion on that. Um, yeah, I mean, my least favorite would probably be um, you know, King's Quest Eight because it was a... Um, you know, it, it turned out to be a good game, I guess, but uh, it, it, it was a, a major headache to get that game done. And, um, you know, my favorite would probably be about King's Quest 5 or 6, where we started really stepping up the music in the product 
it, um, I had always said that um, I thought music was, if I, I remember having a debate with our um, um, oh, uh, creative director, a guy named Bill Davis, who had um, come out of Hollywood. And uh, he, he, uh, he, he thought the uh, ultimate of everything was animation. And I thought the ultimate of everything was probably um, music and sound effects. And um, that, you know, even if you only do two cells of animation, but you get the sound right and timed right, and you can inspire a lot of emotion with music and with sound effects. And um, so we, we used to always debate that and we had put together little demos so I could try to convince him that uh, the music and sound was critical. And there was, you know, there was a magic moment that I mentioned in the book where um, one of our competitors, Electronic Arts, used to uh, run these ads saying, uh, can a computer make you cry? And when we launched, I, I don't remember if it was King's Quest 4 or 5 or 6, whichever one, we went to a trade show and set up a booth and, it, and used a um, synthesizer, the um, MT32 attached to a PC, and we're playing music and this wonderful opening cartoon, and we were leaving people in tears. And that was kind of... Um, you know, kind of the realization of, you know, EA was on, Electronic Arts was on the right track when they talked about that. And, um, I mean, you got to remember things in context. I mean, people hadn't seen video on a computer at that time. They, um, you know, there really wasn't sound cards in computers. And so to suddenly go from this thing that did kind of like beeps and um, to suddenly step up to uh, something that really did feel like a movie and could really have characters that you cared about if lived or died, that was a transformation for the industry. And, uh, you know, seeing people come out of we set it up in a tent so that we could control um, how bright it was in the room and really focus their attention on the screen. But seeing them come out of the tent at the trade show crying, and that's when we, I, I mean, it's just a cool feeling for the industry because you knew it was the beginning of something. Yeah. Yeah, what a special moment. And there's also, I won't spoil it for anyone who is going to read the book. There's a fun story about uh, King's Quest and radio station plays and jamming up phone lines um, with uh, with requests for songs. But I, I won't spoil it for anyone who wants to read that book. <laughs> um, now, something Sierra is really well remembered for, and this ties in with with what you've just been describing, is the quality of the product. It's one of the reasons why big box games, like I've got Police Quest 3 here, um, they command such a high price for collectors today. You know, you can pay £150 right now for Police Quest 1 on eBay, and the prices are going up and up and up because they're so collectible. I remember my first trip to the US. We did have Sierra games in the UK, of course, but it was when I went into a US computer store that I saw all of the Sierra games together, all of the big box games together, huge weighty boxes, wonderful artwork. And that really was the moment when I realized I'd never be a console gamer. I was always going to be a big box PC gamer because I loved these things so much. They made such an impression on me. Was that level of quality and attention to detail in the product, was that driven by you personally? Yes. Yeah. I, I, it, yeah. Yeah. Especially in the past, you know, it, it came out of um, my trips to uh, Japan in the early days and, um, you know, and, and Steve Jobs got it too, you know, and uh, at Apple, he started uh, investing heavily in the packaging and the presentation of the product. I remember going to Japan and um, buying some of the games over there. And the quality of the paper they would print on was so high that, I mean, you, you just, and 
and you go into stores in Japan. I don't know if it's still true today, but certainly in those days, and uh, people wear gloves when they give you anything, even if it's just groceries, and they'll take forever wrapping each individual item. And there's a um, polish that you don't see many times in the U.S. and uh, where there's you know an extreme focus, and I understand that on cost cutting, but a lot of the quality. Um, just wasn't there at the time, and I mean, I guess I really blame it on you know that experience in Japan, and thinking you know that's the kind of perception that I want Sierra's customers to have when they buy a Sierra product. So we yeah you know, we spent heavily on the boxes, and then we did the open flap boxes with little uh, instruction manuals external to the uh, product, so that people could open them like black cauldron. We did cutouts in the front of the boxes. We did. Um, and we did uh, some of the products like, um, oh, like Aces in the Pacific and some of those. I We had you know, 400 page manuals that went with the product. So, uh, yeah, that uh, tactile sensation of buying a big box product. I mean, it's a, um, yeah, it's a big part of the experience and part of the fun for people. Yeah. And, and also when people see a product package like that, they, um, yeah, it, 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 it raises their, um, their perception of the company and their perception of the product. So yeah, packaging was important to us. Is there anyone that you could pick out as uh, the pinnacle of Sierra Big Box presentation, the perfect package of game art, manuals, feelies, everything coming together exactly how you like it? Is there one that really stands out for you? For you. Mm, if I had them all in front of me, I could probably pick one. I mean, the ones that come to mind are like Black Cauldron. <laughs> I mean, that um, the ones where we had the... Um, the front of the box had an extra flap on it and would open. And then we put a color, maybe, you know, eight or 16 pages there that people could look at. And that was pretty nice. Um, the Phantasmagoria box, I mean, just in terms of art direction was beautiful with the uh, black and the shadowy figure on the front. Um, yeah, all, all of them were done pretty nicely. The, um, I can't remember any I didn't love. I mean, we, we did a really nice job with packaging. So the people yeah. at Dynamics really well. You know, some of the like Red this Baron, is... if you look back at it, they just did a nice job. ATN, they did a nice job with that. I Those, absolutely love this. I wish yeah. those Dynamics uh, flight simulators still existed. I mean, God, if they'd kept uh, enhancing those for the last 25 years, think about what amazing products they would be. Yeah, and also games like Heart of China. They did wonderful adventure games, which tapped into some of that 3D engines as well. Um, you mentioned Black Cauldron, which uh, I think was around 1986. Um, there's a question here from viewer WebNerd. He says, I remember going to the cinema to watch Black Cauldron and, um, and then playing the game. And he asks, what was it like taking on a game for Disney? Was there a different way of working required with them compared to other games? Well, probably any, any anybody that's worked with a uh, licensed product, particularly, um, you know, like we work with Henson and Disney, and they're highly protective of their characters, and they have uh, creative teams that, um, you know, just like we're all wannabe filmmakers, they would be wannabe uh, game makers, and um, and yet, you know, they're very different disciplines, and uh, our creative teams would often... Um, uh, throw tantrums at the idea of being forced to work with a uh, licensed product because the, um, 
you know, particularly the big companies like uh, Henson or a Disney would have, um, you know, character sheets for the uh, each character. They would have definite opinions on what each character would do. And suddenly, uh, like our artists couldn't just create, they would have to design a character, send it off for approval, wait for a couple of weeks, and then back comes approval. And then you go the next step, and then you do a puzzle and you send it off, and they evaluate it, and then there goes some more weeks. So it's a um, it's a drag on the game, and um, especially in those days, it wasn't super um, obvious that a licensed character helped because. Um, uh, people knew the Sierra name, and they were looking for the next Sierra game, and they were going to buy it because of the Sierra logo, not because it had said Mickey Mouse on the front. And um, although I, I don't, in some in some niches it helped. It, uh, in the Radio X Shack stores, I do think that having Winnie the Pooh for kids helped. So, mm -hmm. but it was it 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 was it came with uh, pros and cons. You're well remembered for point-and-click adventure games, of course, but you created lots of other genre, genres, educational games. Um, you catered to puzzle games. One of my favorite of all time, The Incredible Machine. You mentioned the flight sims from Dynamic, NASCAR racing. Um, and, and, of course, you courted the multimedia movement in the early 90s with games like Phantasmagoria. How do you stay ahead of the curve in the games industry? Because you, you mentioned earlier just how fast-moving it is. Um, was there a danger of clinging to a platform for too long, like the Apple II, or waiting for others to make the first move? What was the key to, to staying ahead at Sierra? How did you manage it? Well, we had, um, yeah, we, 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 we had some good stuff going for us and that um, we had an underlying engine that we had spent um, a lot of time and money on. And it allowed us to be somewhat platform independent. If a new sound card came out, adding support for it was very easy. And then it would automatically go to all of our products. The, uh, the fact that all of our games are built or most of our games on a common engine, even dynamics with the, um, you know, with the uh, 3D, had a 3D engine that had been evolving for a while. And A10 and Red Baron and Aces over the Pacific, they all used kind of the common engine. And, um, you know, a startup, somebody starting new wouldn't have access to that engine and couldn't produce a product comparable to ours, couldn't move between platforms as fast. And uh, so it gave us a bit of a competitive edge. And also, I mean, the you know, development budgets count when um, when you're an industry leader, you've got more money to throw at products than when you're a little, um, you know, mop pop operation. So being the business uh, biggest and having, you know, uh, dominance on the uh, bestseller charts and having distribution. And we, um, you know, when Sierra was acquired, it's funny and that people think that uh, we were acquired because of Leisure Suit Larry and King's Quest and those brands. But really the big value of Sierra was our distribution. We were in, um, you know, virtually every retail outlet in the world at that point that sold computer software. And, um, you know, being able to uh, uh, run product through that pipeline was um, was important. So, I mean, we, we I, yeah, I guess um, in some ways there's a magic formula and we had a good engine that allowed us to build products and move them between platforms easily, but also just being there from the beginning and having distribution every place software sold so that, um, you know, we could ship out 100,000 copies of a game on day one. And uh, yeah, we were a well-oiled machine to do that. 
So a combination of momentum from being there early and also agility because of that software base that you had to be able to uh, get those games. Yeah, out and, and an attitude. Um, you know, somebody mm. said somewhere at some Sierra board meeting, or I read it somewhere, that um, a leader's job is to lead, and a and, you know, and a follower's job is to follow. And you know, if you're going to lead, you got to lead. And um, with every product, I tried to, you know, one 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 of the one of the differences, I guess, about Sierra was that whereas a lot of companies try to recruit people from competitors, um, I always considered my job at Sierra to kind of wall off people from what our competitors are doing. I didn't really want our people playing competitors games. I wanted them to um, do new games that, you know, hadn't been seen before. I, yeah, I, I didn't like that. Um, I, I just wanted to do what we do. I didn't care what other people do. And I didn't really want our people bogged down in the processes other people were using. I wanted a Sierra product to be uniquely a Sierra product that could have only come from Sierra. So we were, um, yeah, we were fanatical about that. I liked where we were located. And um, yeah, I had never, never went out of my way to hire anybody from any competitor and would have almost ruled them out. So I'm sure you didn't have problems hiring, though. You must have had um, top quality de developers just knock, knocking at your door all the time. Yeah, I mean, that was part of our competitive yeah. edge. I mean, if you think, I mean, it, well, it's why, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to compete with Amazon or Google today, they're in for an uphill battle. Um, you know, when you achieve the position Sierra was in and the best talent wants to work for you, you've got the um, funding you need to be able to produce great products and you've got the distribution. And to, um, yeah, that gives you a heck of a competitive edge. So, A question now from viewer Selly uh, Max. I like this one. He says, were there any quest series that were almost produced but killed off or any quest series that were pitched and, and turned down that didn't happen? What did we miss out on, Ken? Yeah, that's not too many. I and mean, there were some that were mucked up. Um, you know, Quest for Glory. Um, oh, what, what was it originally? I forget what it was originally called. Heroes Quest. And then we hit some oh, yes. um, trademark conflict. And I think we initially called it Heroes Quest, and then we renamed it to Quest for Glory, and there was this loss of momentum. Normally, when we would launch a series, the sequels sell better. You know, in fact, you could see it with King's Quest 1, 2, 3, 4. Each, each one sold way more than the prior one. And um, we, yeah, so that, that series, I remember, got kind of messed up by the name change and didn't get quite the lift that it deserved. It was a truly great product. And um, there, there were some games that we wanted to do that we just never did. But, um, you know, and, and but no, I can't really remember any that, I mean, there were series that failed, like Freddy Farkas, um, that um, actually was pretty funny and should have gone. And we should have done sequels yeah. to it, but never did. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what other ones. I mean, there were some that we did, and but ultimately, you know, customers vote at the box office, and um, if they don't love the product, then uh, although there's times where a series gets messed up strictly by um, not having the people available to do it, you know, Phantasmagoria, um, Roberta's game, she got bogged down in King's Quest Eight and couldn't do Phantasmagoria Two. And it was instead done by um, Lorelei, who did a great game, but it was so different from Phantasmagoria 1 that um, 
it kind of messed up indirectly both Phantasmagoria 1 and itself because it was a different product than what people were expecting. So, mm -hmm. so I don't know. Yeah, I, maybe. Well, I and I know a lot of listeners will be on the edge of their seats wanting to know about your new game. Just before we get there, um, let's just round off the Sierra story with yourself because it's amazing how many people I meet who, who aren't aware of, of this part of the Sierra story. Your book is called Not All Fairy Tales Have Happy Endings and for good reason. Can you just summarize for those who don't know what that unhappy ending was? <laughs> what it was. <laughs> I, I really wanted Sierra. You know, I, I constantly, I was saying, I wanted to build a company that my grandkids would know about. That uh, And I thought we'd achieved it. I mean, Sierra was in a... Um, an amazing position in the industry and uh, should today be, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. But, um, but also I was kind of burnt out. You could say, you know, I've been doing games for 20 years and um, yeah, I thought it was probably time for me to consider um, selling. Uh, plus a lot of pressure. I mean, as the company grew, um, the ability to have an influence on each individual product um, decline. And, um, you know, we had, you know, suddenly, uh, probably at any given time, 50 or 75 products in development. And there was only one of me and I wanted to have an impact on every product. So I was spending all of my time on airplanes running around to development centers, uh, seeing the products. And we got an offer one day to acquire the company. And I spent a lot of time negotiating how the company was going to be run afterwards and convinced myself that this was a good thing for the company. Um, you know, the, the, the company that bought us, a company called CUC, their uh, CEO had a vision of rolling up uh, Broderbund and LucasArts and Sierra and Blizzard and Davidson and creating this monster company that could never be beat. And uh, that sounded pretty appealing. And within that, I was going to be able to focus on development at Sierra and take some of the things that I hated, like finance and operations, and uh, give them off. But we were going to retain our product marketing and our development. And um, we went for it. We sold the company, and uh, which was a nice payday for all the shareholders. And uh, then soon after selling the company, it turned out that the company that bought us um, was... Um, crooked. They had been faking their books and um, basically their, stank, their, their stock tanked. And um, at that point, I, I, you know, I wasn't in charge and I couldn't do anything. And um, they, you know, basically the owner of that company went to jail and um, they immediately sold the company to a French company named Vivendi who um, laid everybody off. And when you take a software company and shut down all the developers and Sierra was more, you know, we were kind of an unusual company in that uh, we were all, or at least 99% internal development. We had roughly a thousand people of which 700 were in development. We were a, a, and there were probably 200 in manufacturing. I mean, the company was basically a development machine. And if you get rid of all the developers, you might make money for a few months, but after that, it's going to get kind of brutal. And uh, they tanked the company. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if I could go back and unsell the company, I would have done it happily. But, uh, but you know, made a mistake. And, I, yeah. I don't, you know, you can't say I made a mistake. I mean, they, um, you know, they had Arthur Anderson, uh, one of the big eight firms, auditing their books. 
and um, they had a board of um, you know skilled business investors and people that had run their own companies and everybody was faked out uh, and the problem is that um, yeah you just don't expect crooks and when you encounter one it's it's bad yeah i think it was one of if not the largest case of fraud at the time uh it was a huge deal huge deal yeah it was kind of yeah. like compared to enron and madoff and some of the other scandals the um yeah their ceo and their president each uh spent 10 years or so in jail so yeah well uh, viewer kevin asks have you ever had the opportunity to buy back sierra or certain game franchises has the op opportunity ever come up for that to happen for you no i i mean in a way i thought i would never uh, work again and that um we kind of started on a second um 15 minutes of fame i guess you'd say and that roberta and i got into boating and uh, started boating around the world and um i um and for whatever reason, we developed a certain amount of fame doing that and that we were, um, I started blogging on our um, crossing the Atlantic and we were part of the first, um, oh, with a group of uh, 18 other boats who were the first power boats to go across the Atlantic. And my blog on that and the book about it wound up being a huge hit and almost anybody that does long distance cruising, certainly in those days, read my book. And um yeah, and then we went on to you know cross the Bering Sea and do all kinds of crazy stuff, and um, so yeah, I, I you know why it was it was just you know I don't want to give up travel, I don't want to give up being portable, and also um, it's impossible to do even if I had one of the uh, Sierra licenses, it's pretty tough to compete with some of the well-financed um, companies that are out there. You know, all of those competitive edges that Sierra have, I wouldn't have. So, I don't know. Yeah, yeah who knows? <laughs> well, Ken, you're one of the most experienced salesmen that, that I've ever had the opportunity to talk to. So, now is the time to shine as we talk about your new game. And at this point, we'll be joined by Marcus. Uh, hello, Marcus. Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. We've got you, Marcus. So, um, Marcus, just explain who you are before we well, continue. Well, I like to think I'm the guy that convinced Ken to make a game again. <laughs> You're a hero. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I start, I'm an artist, and I study uh, 3D modeling from uh, the early 2000s. And I feel like that we should continue with making these adventures and these games. And here we are doing something... I think cutting edge with the VR. I mean, we're, we're switching to, to making it a VR game and, and here we are pushing the envelope again, like like Sierra would. I was like, okay, if Sierra's here today, what kind of game would they make? It would definitely be a VR game. And here we are pushing the envelope, a small team uh, doing amazing stuff. I know nothing about this game, so just you telling me that it's VR is new to me. Um, what else can you tell us? Let's start from the basics. What can you both tell us about this game that you're working on then? Uh, it's a classic adventure game with the uh, Sierra flavor. And we're going to be doing it uh, uh, full 3D. Um, it's great. I mean, I I'm having a lot. I'm having a blast, uh, uh, you know, wandering the world and, and having fun making it. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a great game. And, and the fact that it's going to be in VR, it's like going to be truly a, an awesome immersive experience of like being in a King's Quest, 
but in in virtual reality and uh, i think it's 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 going to be awesome so is the theme of it uh similar to a king's quest theme is it sort of a nice dig neil what can you tell i don't know how much i don't know how much you can tell us about it i think we gotta hold off still ken am i right we gotta hold off (laughs) yeah just for a little while but you you'll be happy i mean and you'll later on you'll think why didn't i think of that that's a cool idea that's um yeah, if Ken was going to do yeah. something, that's what he should do. So you think you've got something innovative and, and cutting edge on your hands then, Ken, enough to get behind this thing and put your name to it again? Uh, you know, if if you compare it to a project that somebody spent, you know, 50 million developing, um, technologically, it's not going to compare. You know, and even, I mean, Marcus is super talented, but some of these projects that got, um, you know, $10 million, 20 or $50 million budgets have teams of artists and uh, teams of animators. So, uh, you know, there's some ways in which I wouldn't consider it competitive, but ultimately, you know, like, like I always used to say, I mean, prettiness will only take you so far, you know, really what counts is, you know, a person sitting at home with his computer. And if they're having fun, you know, the play really counts more than all the prettiness in the world. And uh, that, that's where we're really putting the focus is on making sure that a game is worth playing. And um, yeah, if you put it on one screen and you put, you know, whatever $100 million buys you on the other screen, you're going to see a difference. But if you sit down and spend some time and are looking for that same feeling you had uh, 20 years ago playing a uh, Sierra game, um, although better, I mean, the, um, one, one of the reasons why I didn't want back into the industry was that I thought that um, I couldn't do anything that would look even reasonable. But uh, I've been impressed with Unity. The, uh, you know, part of how I got into this was um, I started coding just, for, uh, just to keep my coding skill current with a popular engine that is used for games called Unity. And then quickly, I kind of saw that this is what like Sierra's SCI, our internal language would have been if it had kept evolving for another 20 years. And in fact, Roberta was just yelling at me the other day or giving me a hard time saying, she told me a hundred times when I sold Sierra, why didn't I hang on to uh, our development engine and keep enhancing it? And we'd have had a huge company today. And she's right. You know, Unity is a big company. It's supporting a lot of the games. And um, in some ways there's, you know, more, um, more money selling picks and shovels at a gold rust than there is, um, you know, digging for gold. So, um, yeah, I should have stayed in there. But I started messing with the Unity engine, and suddenly I realized that, um, in a way, SCI didn't go away. This is like a super evolved version of it, and there really is something that could be done that is worth playing by a fairly small team. I, I, I love Unity. I love how it works with the software packages I've been using since 2003, and this is why we were we were able to move pretty pretty quickly, laying out the the entire game world. Uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to like really exploring what's possible with Unity. And, and Ken is like, no, we gotta stop adding features. We 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 want to launch this game eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the VR shift is well worth the effort. I really do because Ken hasn't even put it on yet. He hasn't seen what it looks like in VR. I got to tell you, you're going to love it. And Roberta's going to love it. It's amazing. Especially with the music and the sound effects and the whole thing happening. It's like, 
You know, it looks like a big budget game for what we've been doing. How big is the team that's working on this? Well, you're looking at it. Now, actually, there's one other okay. person yeah. who's doing yeah, the uh, rollover to uh, VR. But basically, I'm doing 99.9% okay. um, .9 of the code, and Marcus is doing all the art. That's really nice. So this really is a Ken Williams production. This isn't just you putting your name on something. You're fully involved in this. Oh, absolutely. With, um, yeah, when I can free up time to work on it. it, um, it, it, it yeah, even without feature creep, we bought off uh, a, a big challenge. So we're... Um, That's for sure. Yeah, that, that's a um, definitely a full-time job and then some. And is Roberta in any way involved in this project? Well, yes. Um, and we'll get more and more involved as we get deeper into the project. The um, So she was the original inspiration. And at this point, I mean, there's really nothing to get involved with. There's a whole lot of code to write and a whole lot of art to do. And then we'll start getting something. And she'll help us turn, um, turn something... Um, well, turn this big monster into um, a game that's fun to play. I like to just say that it's not easy making a game. It's just not easy. Uh, the steps involved of getting the art ready for a game engine that looks amazing and photorealistic is very technical. And mm -hmm. uh, it takes time. And something a lot of people watching this will want to know, I don't know if you've got as far ahead as thinking about this yet, will there be a big box release of this game? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's going to make a lot of people very happy. Where can people go to find out more about this project then? Uh, funny you should ask. No, go to uh, kensgame.com. You know, my book is kensbook.com and my game is kensgame.com. And I believe there's robertasbook.com as well. Huh? There is a robertasbook.com. <laughs> so, where, uh, you know. I'm not very good at this naming stuff, but uh, but at least it it's works. easy to remember. So yeah. So everyone, kensgame.com. Keep an eye on that domain to find out uh, and watch progress. No doubt Marcus will be teasing us with YouTube videos and things like that in the future. We'll keep an eye out for whatever Definitely. else we can find out about it. I'm excited. Ken, thank you so much for your time today. And Marcus, thank you for the games that you gave us. Um, Thanks again to Roberta. It's fantastic that I got to say hello to her quickly. You've, you've both touched a lot of lives. You've entertained us. You've shaped our careers by inspiring us. And um, we all appreciate it very much. So thank you very much again. Thank you. 